So welcome to Invisible Tears. Today, we're so excited to have Jan Canty, PhD, on our podcast. She's a psychologist, author, podcast host, speaker, and a homicide survivor. Thank you so much for joining us today, Jan. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Mm, it's a pleasure. The pleasure's all ours, believe me. Your your story is actually, you know, extremely inspiring. And um we came across your information when we were at CrimeCon. Um, and so that's why we wanted to reach out to you to really have you on. I think you'll really resonate um with our audience. Um, you're extremely passionate about finding ways to support and help other homicide and suicide survivors. Could you tell our audience briefly um, what you went through to become a homicide survivor? Yes. And to begin with, let me define that because I find some people are really confused by the term homicide survivor because obviously you can't survive homicide, but it's a term not everybody knows. And that just means you're grieving the loss of somebody close to you from murder in a similar way with suicide. And it's because my husband was murdered. That's the short version. The longer version is that I was in my postdoctoral fellowship within two weeks of finishing it. We've been married 11 years by that point in time. He was a psychologist as well. He was a very predictable person. So when he did not show up for dinner at seven, I kind of got a little worried, especially since the weather was really bad out for an August or for a July day. It was hail and rain and wind and that kind of a day. But I kept thinking, oh, it's the weather. And then by 11 o'clock, I started to really get concerned. And this is back in 85 before cell phones and back in the previous century. So there was nothing I could do but wait. And 10 days later, I was still waiting. And I got a phone call from a wonderful woman She's entitled to her own hour of interview by herself. Detective Marlis Landeros called me from the Detroit Homicide Special Victims Unit and asked me to come down to homicide. So I knew that was the first big red flag. Something was not going to go right. She met me at the elevator. Um, we went upstairs to floor five of this 10-story building where I met Inspector Gil Hill. Just for a visual, Inspector Gil Hill had just come off the movie set from the Beverly Hills Cop 1 with Eddie Murphy. He played his boss as the homicide detective head of the homicide unit. So I knew who he looked like. And he's just like that in real person, in real life. He's short on words, rather intense, tall and lanky, and just a guy for his job, I guess you could say. And in a very, very few words, he sat me down and he said, I mean, this went over like in three minutes. He said, we have reason to believe that your husband has been murdered. We don't have his body yet. We are looking into it. We have some strong leads. And we wanted to ask you a few questions, one of which was, have you had any concerns about money? And I said, not really. And he goes, well, you should go home and look at your finances. And I'm like, okay, what does it have to do with my husband not being home? And they said, well, we'll be in touch. So he sent me on my way and I got home. And not only were we without money, we were $30,000 in debt which in today's money means closer to $75,000 in debt. And I'm like, what in the world? So um, another few days went by and Detective Landero said, I'm coming by your house. This is an early, early Sunday morning on July the 20th or 21st. And she said, I'm going to come by and pick you up. We're going back down to headquarters. So I rightly thought, well, this is it. So I went back down, talked to Inspector Gilhill again. And he said in his typical manner, we have recovered your husband's body. He was buried in three places in a shallow grave 
in northern Michigan, uh, near the northern peninsula in Petoskey, Michigan, at the property owned by the University of Michigan Biologic Station, which is reserved for roadkill. We flew his remains back. We have two people of interest that were in the process of arresting. And what we need from you is to go to the morgue and identify him, because this is back before DNA what it is today. And it was that fast. Yeah. And I, I felt like I was wrapped in invisible padding. I felt like the voices I was hearing suddenly came from down the hall were echoing. It was an out-of-body, offline kind of reality for me. And I tried to get up to cooperate, to go with Detective Landeros, and I couldn't get my legs to move. They felt like they had lead plates on them. But I eventually made it. She drove me over, which was only two or three blocks to the morgue which is a very old building. They've since been torn down. It's triangular. It was built on the Egyptian mausoleum theme back in the 20s. It was small. Uh, we went to the building. It was like a, still early on a Sunday morning, and the sun was out. It was a beautiful day, beautiful morning, and I was thinking, we're leaving normalcy outside. We're leaving sunshine. We're leaving kids' voices and we're going into this chamber. And she explained to me what, what I was going to see. She told me what the procedure was going to be. And she said, basically, what I need from you is to say the words yes or no. That's it. I said, okay. So we got in there. We didn't go far, maybe 30 feet. She brought me into this tiled chamber that had fluorescent lights. And I instinctively closed my eyes. And she said, okay, when you're ready, open your eyes and just say yes or no. And I at that moment, I was thinking, how can I ever be ready? for? How can any wife ever be ready for that? So I took my time and I opened my eyes and I shut them again and I couldn't talk. She was very patient. She said, we'll start all over. And I think there was, this part's really fuzzy. I think there were other people in the room with me. And I think it had to be recorded. That's why she had to hear me verbally say yes. I couldn't nod, but I, that's all fuzzy. I don't remember for sure. So I opened my eyes briefly and said, yes. And then she said, fine. And she turned me around and led me to the front door. But by that time, a whole bunch of, of um, news crew had assembled and they wanted to catch me coming out of the morgue. Fortunately, she caught that before I did. I was kind of out of it. I was like a mannequin at that point. She just whirled me around. We went out the back and she said, I want you to lay down in the back of my squad car and I'll drive you back to headquarters that way. So we did. And that was like the intro to the nightmares and the repercussions because the media did not let up for 18 months. They were relentless. They invaded his funeral. They were there at the morgue. They camped outside my house. They called me so often I've changed my phone number repeatedly. I had to write it down to remember it. They were so in, unthinking that they published a map on the head of the uh, the front page of the Detroit Free Press showing the murder scene and its relationship to my house. So now everybody had my address. Then the, uh, what we call death tourists, started coming by, those that like true crime. And they treated it like it was entertainment, like it was a festival. They would pop out of their car and get their picture taken in front of my house. They would steal things from their house on the outside. They'd ring my doorbell to see if I'd come out. That went on for months. Not every day, but it went on and on. So I happened to mention that to my neighbor who I was close with. She had a beautiful house. And she said, here's a key to my back door. Anytime you want, just come in the back door and go upstairs to the guest room. You don't have to be in your house if you don't want to. 
And I took her up on that. I was the first place I felt safe in a long time. So that was the next big thing was the pretrial, the preliminary hearing. So he was murdered on, we think, July 14th. The body was discovered around the 21st. And then the preliminary exam was a few weeks after that, a couple weeks after that. I was subpoenaed to go. Had I not been, I would have never gone. I did not want anything to do with the public, with the crime scene, with the vic- with the uh, perpetrators or alleged perpetrators at that point. But I was subpoenaed to go, so I had to go. So I did. I was the first witness there to be on the witness stand. They had a weapons check at the entrance to the building, which was pretty standard. But they also had a secondary weapons check at the entrance to the courtroom, which was not traditional. And that's because the perpetrator of the crime, which was John Carl Fry, had been known to be involved with other murders in the city. And they feared other people would kill him so he couldn't testify and spill the beans on what else he knew. So I was the first person up there. And before I got to the witness stand, the district attorney, who's supposed to brief you on what they're going to talk about, did not do that, just pulled me inside. And he said, well, we have to meet in judges' chambers. So I went in the judges' chambers, and he's and the, the defense attorney was there for Carl Fry, John Carl Fry, and he wanted to stipulate to my testimony, which is his way of getting me out of there. And so they were going to try to dismiss me. And I said, whoa, listen to me. This guy's six six. I'm five feet tall. I said to him, look, this trial does not belong to you. It does not belong to the state of Michigan. This re- belongs to me. This is my trial as I see it. This was my homicide of somebody I care about. And long after it is over, it is going to haunt me for the rest of my life. So I respectfully ask that I get my two minutes on the stand. I don't think that's a lot to ask, particularly when I rearranged my life to be here. And you subpoenaed me to be here. And he backed off and he said, okay. So he got me out. Because by that time, I had shifted out of a place from being frightened to being really angry. And he put me on the witness stand and he only had a few questions and they were kind of ridiculous. One of them was, I'll never forget it. Did you give anybody permission to dissect your husband? First of all, he wasn't dissected. He was beheaded. There's a difference. And of the answer is kind of obvious, but I guess he wanted it on record. And all the time I'm testifying, I'm looking at the two defendants. It's the first time I'd ever seen him in my life. The man who did it looked like if you could picture... The, the, the Mr. Clean on the disinfectant bottle, but with poor hygiene. That's what he looked like. Bald, big, tattooed, earring, classic biker guy, glaring. And I glared back. I was so mad. Took all my strength not to get up and go over to the defense table. And his co-defendant, the woman involved, was utterly bored. She was nodding off. I think maybe she was withdrawing from drugs. I don't know. She looked green. She could have cared less. So I said my few words. I left. I decided then and there because of all of that, that I would not attend the trial. And I never did because I thought this has nothing to do with me. This is a show for the DA. I don't know these people and nothing in the courtroom is going to change my life. I'll still be a widow. I'm still going to have to sell my house. I'm still going to be in debt. I'm still going to have the media chasing me. I'm still going to have health problems from all the stress. And I'm still going to have the probability of having to quit my job, which was I had just started, which was my practice. I had just like two weeks, three weeks into it. And I thought, I can't, under all this pressure, do clinical work, number one. And number two, I think people would be a little reluctant to come worrying about my mental health. So I thought, I'm going to have to quit my job. Did they ever give you a 
an advocate to go to court? There wasn't advocates in those days. Uh, there wasn't grief therapy in those days. There wasn't the internet in those days. There was nothing in those days. The only thing I had to hold on to for my sanity was two people. That would be Detective Landeros and my mentor, Dr. Rutledge. Now, my parents did fly in at that point for the preliminary exam. They dropped everything and came. And they were very helpful. But they were also very angry for what had happened to me and were on a a narrative about that. Like, how could he do this to you? What, you know, because he had gotten himself into the situation to get himself murdered, given away our money, got involved with these people. And I didn't need any more anger on top of already what the anger I was feeling. So that was not helpful. What I did need them for, and which they did help me with, was manning the front door, manning the phone, helping me go places so that I wouldn't be by myself because they didn't know if they caught everybody involved. So there were even the police had a tail on me. I didn't know that at the time. So my parents were helpful, but not in the way I needed in some respect. I'm not faulting for them because really they did drop everything and come out. And they were very helpful in many ways, getting the house ready for sale and helping me have a garage sale and all that were very, very helpful, very needed. But they kept fanning the flames of my anger because they were so angry at what it, the, the situation for me. But they could only be there three weeks because they were retired. They were living in Arizona and their, both their, their birthdays are three days apart. And both just so happened, both of their driver's licenses were expiring in the next week. And they had to fly back to make sure those, they had their driver's license renewed so they couldn't hang around. And they said it was the hardest thing they had to do was to leave knowing winter was on its way and the trial was on its way in December. And this was like in August. And I said, well, look, I said, you guys have been wonderful parents. You've taught me to be self-confident and I'm now going to use all that. That's all that investment in you, in me that you put all these years raising me is going to pay off. I can handle it from here. And I promise you, I'll be out to see you during the trial because I don't want to go to the trial. I'm going to come out and see you in December. And I did and It was snowing. What are the odds Snowing in Arizona in December. Anyway, so that was it. Then the trial came and went. He got the maximum. There is no death penalty in in Michigan. So he got life without the chance of parole. She got the opposite. She got a slap on the wrist. She got out before I could sell my house. And that was the end of it, legally speaking. Uh, and they trotted off to do their respective legal things. And then it was basically back in my lap to figure out my life from there. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. And now back to our episode. I, I have so much to say and ask. Um, I know with me after my attack, that was my biggest thing is I'm physically healed. I'm out of the hospital. I just had my baby. Now what do I do? Where do I bring my life? Where, you know, mentally, how am I supposed to survive what I survived. How did you do it? I think in the very early weeks, anger sustained me. And I was extremely busy. I had to sell my house. I had to get it ready. I had to stop my practice. I had to take care of my physical health because I went into premature menopause. And I thought, they took that from me too. Now I can't have children. Uh, so I had, and I had the IRS on my back. I had so many, every day it was like I was waking up to something. And then my doctor said to me, you really should be tested for HIV. That had just been discovered that month. And the Alicia test had only been out two weeks before my doctor said, I want you to take, because he had been involved with the sexually 
he'd been involved sexually with an IV drug abusing prostitute when HIV was on the upswing with no treatment. So he said, I want you to know what you got down the pike, if anything, with respect to HIV. So we got to rule that out. So that's just an example. Every day it was like, what is it going to be today? So there was no time to grieve. There was no time to plan. It was just about putting out fires for a long time, dodging the media. That was still going on. Figuring out my finances. Oh, my God, he left me in so much debt. So I ended up selling everything I could sell. I ended up turning down the heat in the house that winter. I had frozen pipes. I, I only ate once a day. That's all I could afford. I sold everything I could think under the sun. I And as I uh, sold off things, I closed off the rooms in the house till I was living in one room with a heating blanket for heat. So while you're going through all this, the anger is just building and building and building oh, because and building. I kept finding out. And there was so much I did not know. Because in the long run, I found out two, well, 18 months, not two years, 18 months later, I found out he'd been living a double life. He'd given away all our money. He'd been involved with this couple where she was a, the drug feeding prostitute. He had, I had, a, I had sent something was afoot, something was up. And I didn't expect that, but I just felt uneasy the last mm, six weeks of his life. So one of the things I did, because when I get anxious, I tend to get busy. And one of the things I did is I assembled a <clears throat> scrapbook, a photo album of the contents of our house and labeled them all and gave estimated values, took pictures of it, organized it in case it was a fire or we were broke into that I could say, this is how many towels we had. Here's a picture of them. And this is our linens and this is our dishes. And blah, blah, blah. I had this all in an album. Found out he gave that album to them too. So they had the layout to my house. They had our money. They knew where we lived. They knew where I lived. They knew what kind of car I drove. So that's why the police were fine. I didn't know any of this going on. And the police did not have time to sit down and talk to me because at that point in Detroit's history, according to some of the detectives I met with later, there was 800 murders already at that point in the year. And it went up to 900 before the year was out. So they had no time to sit there and hold my hand. Nobody had time for me. So I had all these questions like, how long has he been doing this? Why did this happen? Who are these people? What do they know? And nobody could answer my questions. So I heard that one of the Detroit Free Press reporters wanted to write a book about it. So that's one of the reasons it was always in the news. He kept wanting to fan the flames of it. Like John Carl Fry escaped prison. He went to Jackson, escaped. Well, that was made front page. And it's, it just, he wasn't out for long. He was caught within 24 hours, but it, it just resurfaced it all. And then it was like six months ago, this happened in Detroit. I'm like, you know, with all the murders going on in Detroit, you got to focus on this. So my, I went to my attorney and I said, I don't want this book. And he said, you can't stop the book. It's public knowledge. It's out there. And you, 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 you can't do anything about it. Uh, and he says, furthermore, I'd, I'd encourage you to cooperate with the, with the author who wanted to interview me. And I said, why? I don't want nothing to do with any book. And he said, because it's the only way you're going to get your questions answered. Otherwise, you'll take them to the grave. It's your choice. And it's also your way of telling your side of the story. Otherwise, he can he could insert whatever he wanted for your side of the story. He could have. And I said, I don't care if he does. I don't care. I said, he can tell his book and put whatever BS he wants in it. I am so disassociated from that. I don't ever intend on reading it. And for the people that really know me and care about me, that's the only people I really, I don't care what the public thinks. They can believe whatever they want. They have no meaning in my life at this point. I, like I said, I was still pretty angry. But anyway, I listened to my attorney and I thought that is a nice trade-off. I have so many questions. 
And he goes, just hear the guy out. Just that. Just hear him out. And if you have any rules or any requirements for your participation in the book, let him know and see if he's willing to go along with that. And I said, yeah, one would be that any part that has, to, I one, I want to be, have the minimal, the most minimal role I can have in such a book. I'd be happy with a footnote. He can write whatever he wants about everything else. And secondly is I want it stated someplace, I don't care where, in the book that I did not accept any money on behalf of this book, because a lot of people jumped to that conclusion, like, oh, she did it for the money that Al McBull. So he did. He sat down with me and he filled me in on a lot of ugly realities. And and that was helpful. He, my attorney was right. I It filled in a lot of blanks that I would never have figured out on my own. So after 18 months of this crap, I thought, I'm out of here. My parents have left. My business is in ruins. I can't afford my house. I got to sell it anyway. Uh, I might as well just leave even though I really wanted to stay. I had no idea where I wanted to go. So I just decided I would go to a place way off the beaten path, and I did. And I have never mentioned where that place is because I don't want people following me through my life to know where I'm at from there. But I found a place way off the beaten path where <laughs> it was as different as the moon is to the sun from Detroit. I mean, one story is when I got there, I locked, I was with some people. I, I went into teaching rather than clinical work. And I was with some people and I was driving and I instinctively locked my car when we got where we were going. And they took offense at that. Why are you locking your car? You think I'm going to steal your car? And I'm like, I said, I don't even know what you're asking me right now. Well, why did you lock your car? I go, I always lock my car. We don't do that here. I'm like, oh, really? It was so, I had so many things to learn. I did not even know what to call a silo. I learned what a weather vane was called. I saw fireflies for my first time in my life. It was the antidote I needed. I, I got a place that was sitting next, that was built next to a pond. And I remember listening for the frogs at night and watching the weather vane and the neighbor's property go and hear it squeak at night. It was so different from sounds of the city. It's the first time I'd seen stars without light pollution. And I loved teaching. I didn't expect that. I loved it. So I, I loved it. And I would have stayed, except the weather was awful. It was 130 degree temperature range morning from uh, winter to summer. So I didn't stay there more than a few years, but I did love it. And it was very, very helpful to me. But then to get back to your question about what did I do, I decided to fall back on a model of intervention that I learned as a psychologist in my training, which was that if you want to have a durable change in your life, you have to address at least these three aspects of your life. You have to look at the biological, the psychological, and the sociological, all three. So I thought, okay, sociological, I tackled that first. So I decided to volunteer on five continents in very remote places doing volunteer work with people who had nothing. I mean, nothing. They didn't even have clean water. They didn't have roads. They didn't have medical care. They didn't have electricity. They had nothing. And I came home from those. I went a few times and I came home from that experience with a totally different outlook. It's like, wow, I have totally taken for granted what I have going for me. I have my education, a roof over my head, reliable transportation, medical care, electricity, clean water legal rights as a female, clothing on my back. I could go on. And I have got to stop this whining and self-pity and start focusing on with gratitude about what I do have and what has not been changed by all of that's happened in my life. 
that put a totally different spin on things. So that was one thing I did. And I ended up going to five continents and volunteering and met some astounding people. Oh, my God. I, the stories I could tell about the animals and the people and the things that happened. But at any rate, that, that was the sociological. And then for the physical, I knew I needed to get in shape. So I joined a gym. And this wise person who met me at the front desk said, you want to join this group of other women that is exercising over here. And she introduced me to them. And I liked them right away, these four women. And they met four mornings a week at 6.30, rain or shine, snow or sun, and you had better be there or they were going to come get you out of bed. It was that kind of dedication. And they met four mornings a week at 6.30, and we met religiously. And in our fourth year, three of us decided to do triathlons. So we started doing triathlons together. And our take on it was different, though. We did not want to be competitive about it. So what we decided to do is all of us were going to cross the finish line together on purpose. So we did that. My husband thinks that's like, because I remarried, he always thought like, what? And I go, yeah, it was not a competitive thing. It was a esprit de corps kind of thing, you know? <laughs> and so we did that and we we crossed the finish line together. It was a real high. It was, I, I can't explain the physical sensations you feel when you have that degree of adrenaline going and you're in your last mile and you cross the finish. You could go and go and go after that. It, it's very astounding experience. Um, you get the wind at your back and you feel invincible. It's a wonderful feeling. So I did that physically. And then the hardest part was the psychological. I, you know, time had moved on by this point. We now had the internet. We now had cell phones, yada, yada. I'd read married. My uh, son-in-law's, or my stepson's wife, who I'd lovely, lovely woman. I keep trying to hope she'll move back and be closer to us. Um, she's the one that suggested I try a podcast. And I'm like, I don't, I don't even listen to, I don't know anything about them. I don't know electronics. I don't listen to pod. She said, we'll figure it out. So I did. And I have, I discovered then two things. One is how generous and supportive other podcasters can be. That's like their own little community, their own little world. And they were extremely supportive very helpful with silly questions like, what's a pop filter? And they, they they led me along the mechanics of how to get started, very generous with their time. But the second thing I learned was the networking that came from it. I'm now in my fourth season. I'm already recording for season five. It's heard in 22 countries. And I have met the most amazing, with a capital A, people. I, am, I would never, ever, ever have had a chance to meet were it not for the internet people from different countries who, and every murder is very different. And through them, I found my tribe. Through them, I found my voice. And I became from the other extreme of not talking about it and going on as if it didn't happen to the other extreme of being an advocate for other homicide survivors with every chance I can and everything I can do in my fiber of my being. And that's why I do public speaking. I mostly speak with groups of detectives I speak to crime scene cleanup companies because they're in my radar for the treatment that they give homicide and suicide surviving families. I have met with um, crime journalists. I want to spread awareness of the realities of, and to bust the myths associated with living post-homicide uh, whenever I can. And it's been exhilarating. And I feel so blessed to have had those sequence of events and to have met the people I've met that it keeps me going. It really does keep me going. I, I learn something from them all the time. It's an amazing experience. I, I'm curious, um, what are some of the myths that are out there 
I think we get most of our information from TV, like Law and Order and movies, docudramas. Here's a myth. Many, if not most people who assume that in this day and age of improved technology, like the MVAC machine, which can get DNA from rock, it can get DNA extracted from clothing that's been in water for decades. Most people would assume that in this day and age with the technology we have today, nobody can get away with murder. When the reality is that closure rates for murder are dropping, and we're now down to a flip of the coin. It's a 50% chance of getting away with murder than what it was even 20 years ago. And of those 50% who are charged with a murder, only 3% go to trial. The other 97% get a plea bargain to a lesser of offense in exchange for testimony, which is brief. We don't get our answers question, our questions answered. We don't get to see evidence. It's just cut and dry here and done, gone. That's one myth. The other myth is I'm also very active with the Innocence Project. And I, which is because I had a guest on my show who was wrongly convicted of murder, and he drew me into the Innocence Project. And I am ashamed and startled to see how easy it is to get wrongly convicted of homicide and the games that some prosecutors are willing to pay to get a conviction at any and all costs. I mean, that could be a show right there. It's disgusting. It really is disgusting. And I don't think the average person knows how easy it is to get fingered for a crime, even if you have no criminal history, if you've got money, if you've got a private attorney, that's no guarantee. So that's another myth. Um, another myth is that we get this thing called closure. You probably know because being a crime victim yourself. No such thing. Yeah. There's no such thing. No. And uh, another myth would be that we get a lot of social support. I don't know how it is for your situation, but with homicide survivors, there is so much stigma surrounding having someone in your family murdered or a close friend that you become the, the the poster child for crime in your neighborhood. And there's this, you know, this subtle but hurtful mentality that is floating out there that, well, you reap what you sow. So what did you do to set yourself up to get into this situation? So, so you become ostracized. You don't have support. I mean, you, it swells at the very beginning and it swells at the time of the trial and maybe conviction but it dissipates and you find yourself very alone, which is why support groups and the media, I mean, uh, social networks like uh, peer groups are so, so important. But I did not expect a turnover of friends. I did not expect the social isolation and blame that came with it. But that's real. And it's and I'm not uh, isolated in that. It is very real. I mean, I, I had um, after my attack, right as soon as uh, Unsolved Mysteries aired my story, this was before social media or internet or any of that. I had people literally write me hate letters telling me that I needed to stop playing the victim card. And I, sh I, I um, how dare I put my, ch my unborn child in danger? I should have never stopped that night for a soda. You should have known better. Oh, yeah. You know. Uh, take responsibility for what you did in the part that you played in your attack. Oh yeah. I mean, I yep. mean, and these are people I didn't even know that that were so judgmental. There's so many judgmental people out there that just don't even know. And the, and the media doesn't help sometimes, you know, they, they find a part of the story that they just want to run with and, and, they don't actually really look at the the side of the um, the family or or the 
the surviving victim. They just they they want to look at the you know the monster, or or the murderer, and and always want to talk about that. I I know with us with me and Amanda and Drew we've we're really trying to be victim focused because it really is it should be victim focused. I don't think the public will ever be as interested in the victim focus. Sadly, I think they'll always be interested in the perpetrator. I want to be wrong. I want to be wrong about that. Please tell me I'm wrong. We are really finding that true crime podcasting is shifting to victim focus. Like when we went to CrimeCon, we were amazed at how victim focused everything was at TrueCon. I would not have expected that. We didn't expect it. Like that was our first crime con. So we didn't expect it. And it was, it really is starting to shift because I mean, it's, I think it's got a lot to do with um, podcasters like us that are, Mm. are trying not to, you know, I'm not trying to get the story out about Ted Bundy or this one or that one or the Long Island serial killer. We're trying to focus on the victims and, and how this has impacted their lives and, and, um, you know, victims' families. I mean, and like you said, there's no closure. There's no such thing as closure. Sometimes you might find answers, but a lot of people are under the insum- assumption that, especially with my case, um, you know, after some, you go through something traumatic like this, you just, you know, deal with it, get over it, and move on. Well, you can't, I, I didn't know how to move on from this. It's life-altering. Yeah, it is. I mean, there was no book out there wrote about, oh, what do you do after you've been attacked and stabbed 27 times? You know, how do you move on with your life? Plus, in your situation, you have physical scars. You have reminders of it every day. I do. I do. But I think now I I look at that very differently. I, I instead of looking at my scars, especially my defensive scars, I don't look at them so negatively they're more of a, um, they tell me and show me that I'm a survivor. You know, yeah. I've, I've, I've shifted from that victim to being a survivor. And that's what I am. I'm a survivor. My daughter's a survivor. And we're really focused on that versus, you know, being the victim or, or you know, looking at my scars and, and, and all that so negatively. Um, it wasn't healthy for me to look at that so negatively. Right. So, so like the anniversary date of my attack, I mean, for, for over 20 years, it was, it was horrible. I, I went through weeks of anxiety and I just dreaded that date, August 6th, and I just dreaded it. And now I, the past couple of years, especially being able to do the podcast with Amanda and Drew, I, I now look at August 6th as, you know, that's a celebration for me. I survived that day. I survived. My daughter survived. You know, I, I'm more grateful for what I have in my life now. And especially with that date, it's, it, I don't feel the anxiety anymore. It, it takes some time. I mean, I, I did some real, I did some real serious therapy, but it takes a lot of time and therapy to be able to shift yourself from that that dark space that dark place in your life to switching it over to you know what i i still have more life to live and i want to be um you know a productive part of of 
society, you know, what can I do? What was my purpose of surviving is mm -hmm. what I struggled mm -hmm. with for a long time. Mm -hmm. And now I know, I mean, this is my purpose, uh, mm -hmm. sharing stories, um, you know, allowing me to give my platform to you to share your most incredible story. And, and so I think it's, it is about finding a purpose um, and advocating. I mean, we are shifting to advocating. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of Invisible Tears. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast to hear all future episodes. Click into our link tree too in the episode description to find and follow us on all our social medias. And it also links to our website, invisible-tears.com, where you can keep current on any events that may be coming up, read more about Jane and the team, and read more about all the Connecticut River Valley unsolved cases. If you want to learn more about my wellness practice, Guided Path Wellness, head to guidedpathwellness.org. There you can read more about me and my certifications, more about the Reiki and coaching services I offer both in person and remote, and read all about my products for sale that I make through the practice. Feel free to utilize the contact us section on the website with any questions or utilize that free 15 minute consultation booking button if you have any questions about what might work for you. Evil may exist in this world, but we will not let it win. See you next episode.